watching with the family this week, we were looking at um, the BBC's recent adaptation of the Diaries of Anne Frank. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a really great series, five little parts. And um, we began talking about what it was to face persecution, opposition for your faith. It's an obvious kind of narrative within that, within that story. And the conversation began as you got to the end of episode five, as uh, uh, Anne and Margot and uh, their parents and the other family that were living with them, walking down the stairs, being um, taken by the SS um, towards the concentration camps, which they met their final end. And we talked about how the Nazis believed themselves to be this kind of Aryan supreme race, and uh, therefore they wanted to rid the world of Jews and the disabled, poignant for them. And others as well, incurable diseases and so on. Barnaby, my eldest son, if you don't know him, he asked this quite a telling question. I think it was something like this. What were the Christians doing, Daddy, while all this went on? It's a brilliant question, isn't it? What were the Christians doing while all this went on in Nazi Germany? Well, many of those who went to church within Germany uh, feared the Third Reich. They feared Hitler many left the church as a result. Church attendance dropped by 50% in the 1930s in Germany. A good number, though, who remained in the church, they just said nothing. They, they did nothing. And so-called Christians idly watched six million Jews go to concentration camps, used as slave labour and eventually gassed and burnt when the Nazis have taken everything from them. And that established church in Germany, they began to support the Nazi regime publicly. Handshakes with Hitler were commonplace. It was quite disgusting. But there were a few Christians who were not frightened and they spoke up against the inhumane treatment of the Germans who they lived with. Uh, those Christians were part of what was, uh, became known as the Confessing Church in Germany. And they, they were a dissenting voice throughout the 1930s, and so much so that Hitler ordered actually all the burning of their seminaries where they learnt theology in 1937. Burnt them all. And then Hitler ordered uh, 6,000 ministers to be arrested, and many were executed in the concentration camps. And one voice that really annoyed Hitler was a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He died aged 39 in Flossenburg, a concentration camp, just one month before its liberation by Allied forces at the end of the war. He was the founder and the leader of the Confessing Church. And his probably most famous book is called The Cost of Discipleship. And in my opinion, humble opinion, it's a must-read. Our passage begins today with, it's actually a rhetorical question. Look at it, down in verse 13. The assumption behind the question from Peter is that we shouldn't expect harm uh, for doing good, and that's the context of what we're looking at. But it will come. Look at verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? And he goes on in verse 14. But even if you should suffer, you see the assumption behind the rhetorical question? Oh, it's going to happen. And what he's saying is, I guess, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond if, if you should suffer for doing good as a Christian in this world? This is how Bonhoeffer responded. Being a Christian is less about cautiously <coughs> avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. 
Bonhoeffer and the confessing church in Germany faced imprisonment and execution. Their pressure was to, I, I guess, just sort of go a bit kind of underground, a bit low profile, if you like, uh, and compromise their faith. Actually, not to compromise the core of their faith, but to water down the implications that flow from the core of their faith. But they said... The gospel, and this is what 1 Peter is about, I guess, the gospel is not truly understood, I don't think. And the cross is not fully understood unless it stamps its authority on the life of the Christian and the mind of the Christian and the actions of a Christian. It leads someone, whatever the circumstances they may face, to live, as Bonhoeffer put, that courageous life, actively doing God's will. See, uh, one commentary I was reading this week put it this way. It's a lovely little phrase. He said, the church is not called to merely exist or survive, but to live and live a cross-shaped life. See, the, the church in 1 Peter, as we've seen again and again from chapter 2, verse sort of 10 and 11 onwards, um, it's been called to be this agent of change in a very hostile world. We're to live as aliens and strangers so that the world might see our good deeds and so change and so want to glorify God on the day that he visits us. But change in this world will never happen. It will never happen if we, the church, are paralysed by fear. And last week, Peter called the church to be an example. We saw that in a number of relationships, marriage, work, in the world. But there was this realism, wasn't there, to Peter? He said it was going to lead to an inevitable insult, suffering, trial. So Peter, what he's doing today is he's taking this to its kind of logical conclusion. He's preparing his readers for the struggles that will lie ahead. Last week he said, be an example. And now he says, first point today, be strong. Be strong. Set apart Christ as Lord. Now our struggles, I don't think they're going to be in the same league as, as the, um, the confessing church of Germany faced under Nazi regime. I don't think that's the case. All I, mean, I was reading this week, and I've, I've got a few of these. Um, Lindsay's very helpfully given them from the Barnabas Fund, praying for the persecuted church. It's a small leaflet, seeing what Christians around the world are facing. I was just going through with the boys with it earlier on. They love it. They, they, they just want to read about what other boys and girls are facing around the world so that they might pray for them. We're not going to face this. My boys, your children, we, I doubt, are going to face the persecution like the Confessing Church or many of these people have faced. Our struggle is different, yes. But this passage applies no less. To us, we're to be strong. We're to set apart Christ as Lord. Why? Well, Peter in verse 14, cast your eyes down there, provides a kind of the inevitable picture of confrontation for the Christian who is struggling to live this good and distinct life for Christ in this world, this cross shaped life. The question is within that confrontation, who's going to be in control? Uh, is, Is Jesus Christ going to be in control or is your fear? going to be in control. Because we know that the people we live around, we're, we're not, they're not naturally just, are they? Therefore, Christians, we will face injustice all the time for our faith in this world, for doing good. But the question is, what is going to be in control in that situation? Is it, is it your fear of what people might say? 
Or is it Christ who's going to be in control in that situation? Peter says, doesn't he, do not fear what they fear. Let me give you a bit of context to to why he's saying that. He's actually quoting there from Isaiah chapter 8. The situation there is that uh, God's people in Jerusalem, they're expecting the Assyrians to come down into Jerusalem, to sack sack the place, to kill many people. That's the kind of context of where he's quoting from. Now they don't actually come, the Assyrians. The Babylonians come instead later. But, you know, that's a historical detail. But they were expecting the Assyrians to come. God's people were succumbing to their fear. That is the context. But Isaiah, in Isaiah 8, which is a quote from, he, he cries out to God's people. And he reminds them that the Lord, the God, Yahweh, is the one that they ought to fear. Why? Well, because he's got Assyrians in his hand. He's got any circumstances. He can, can crush an army. He can use an army. He can do whatever he wants. He's got everything under control. And so what about you? Who controls your actions, your mind, your heart? Is it fear of the circumstances you face? Or is it God? Well, we probably fear, I guess we all do at some point. We fear what everyone else fears. We fear of being isolated in our peer groups, perhaps our work groups, our team at work. For just standing out, for saying what we believe in a particular circumstance. We fear mockery, don't we, for our faith sometimes as Christians. Questions like this. You'll get them perhaps tomorrow. What did you do at the weekend? I mean, that kind of thing goes around the office, doesn't it? Maybe first coffee in the morning. What did you do at the weekend? Now, who controls your actions will probably determine your response. Now, see, if you're controlled by fear, you'll probably just say, well, I had a bit of a lazy morning and, I didn't do much. I went to the pub in the evening and skip over anything to do with church, meeting Christians, looking at the Bible. Oh, someone might even say, if you get into a conversation, that God stuff, it's an absolute load of rubbish. How can you possibly believe in that? And people can get quite aggressive. Who do you fear? Do you fear them? Or do you fear God? See, how you respond in those kind of situations will demonstrate to you who's really in control. Is it fear? Are you just like everyone else, as Peter puts it? Or do you fear God? In Isaiah 8, uh, the context of this, the solution is really quite simple. In Isaiah 8, verse 17, he says, I will wait for the Lord and I will put my trust in him. I'll put my trust. I'll depend on on my Lord. Uh, I'll set apart God in my life. He's the one who's going to control everything. So you see, verse 14 of our text, it says, do, you, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, verse 14. The answer, how do we not fear? Well, verse 15, set apart Christ as Lord. It's kind of the great controlling principle of the Christian life. Now, the church... Us, Christchurch Hillsford, we will never make any impression in this world until we set apart our hearts for Christ as our Lord, King, the one in control. And it's why the church is so weak in this country and around so many parts of the world. 
because we don't want the lifestyle of the Lord. We don't want that kind of cross-shaped life. We don't want to be the alien and stranger. We don't want to be the elect exile. We don't mind the elect bit, but the exile bit, no, thank you very much. See, the intellectual position of the cross, uh, which many of you know so well, you've already done thousands of Bible studies on it. You can agree with that. That's very easy, isn't it? It's much harder, isn't it, to live it out? To willingly submit our lives and our hearts to Christ. To make him Lord, that is king. The control over every decision, over every longing, over every action. But it is key to us being effective. If, if chapter 2 verse 12, that is you know, living such good lives so that they might glorify God on the day he visits, that's not going to happen. If the church hasn't set apart its heart, it was Christ as Lord. It's too often, I guess, we fear, and as a result, we, what, you in, what you're doing, maybe not intentionally, you, you, you're kind of playing God, aren't you? At least you're manipulating God. You're saying, oh yeah, I don't mind you being Lord of that bit, but mm, not that bit, thank you very much. You're not setting apart your heart for God. You're just saying, you can have that bit, but not the rest. Of course, we want to testify to him being Lord, but it's very difficult, isn't it, for those particular aspects that we struggle with in our lives. Just think for a moment. What is the struggle? Maybe, if you, maybe you call yourself a Christian. You might look at the Christian faith. You might say, oh, the cross makes sense. I, I, all that, but I don't want to give God that part of my heart. Thank you. Is it bringing up the children? Perhaps relationships, our work. Do you fear what everyone else fears? Do you want to be Lord over that part of your life? We don't like to be told what to do, do we? None of us do. But every time we make that kind of decision, we're essentially watering down the distinctive, and, and to be honest, a beautiful nature of the church. It's set apartness, is what makes it unique and attractive. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, I was reading a little sermon of his on, on this, he once said that the cross must go through the heart to the mind to activate the will. See, we're not to just believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Lord. We're to set apart our hearts, give him everything, control of our longings, of our dreams, of our aspirations. And we like to think we're in control, don't we? Because everyone does. But there will always be parts of our lives, especially as you get older, you realise you're not in control. Aches and pains are warning signs to you the whole time. Vision, oh, opticians this week, you know, warning signs that you are not in control of everything. And it's humbling, isn't it? Things like money, things like success, beauty, fame, they can blind us to those realities. But in the end, one thing humbles us all. To realise we are not in control. And that is death itself. And being a Christian is simply meaning that you are strong enough to have a different fear. You have a fear of God. God whose wisdom, love and power is infinite for you. Who has not only your life in his hands, but he's actually got your death too. And being a Christian 
really means being strong enough to just say, it's yours. It's saying, I'll let go of those things. It means taking my mind and heart away from grasping at kind of control of my life, wherever I can possibly go, and saying, God, it's yours. I'll set apart my heart for you. It's handing it over to Jesus. We have to set our hearts and our minds on giving God the control of our lives. And it does sound dull, doesn't it, to some people? You probably look at it and think, oh, but I love that little part. I don't want to do that. I don't want to give God that bit of control in my life. No, thank you very much. And we fear the implications of setting our whole hearts apart for Christ. But the way of God, the way of the cross is good and is perfect and is joyful. I was just looking at John 2 with a little group with Karen this week. It's a picture, a beautiful picture of all the joy, all the celebration of the kingdom to come. The joy of the celebration of life with Christ now as well. But the reality is that sometimes the Christian life, it does look hard, doesn't it? It did for the confessing church, and I guess it w- would have done for Peter's uh, readers here in Asia Minor. It looks like suffering. It looks like torment. It looks like struggle. Let me remind you of Romans 12, verse 2. You've been looking at it just a few weeks in, in home groups. The will of God is good, perfect, and pleasing. I wonder if you believe that. Sure, we may face some trials. We may have been persecuted like Bonhoeffer in the confessing church be killed for our fear of God. But the pressures and the trial reveal whether we're entrusting in God and not ourselves. And therefore, although it's amazing, you see at the end of verse 14, he says that's a blessing. It's extraordinary that, isn't it? They are a blessing, these struggles. So be strong, set apart Christ as Lord. Um, Secondly, let's move on quickly if we can. Be practical, defend Christ as Lord. We're looking now um, halfway through verse 15, if you want to have a look at that, uh, through to verse 17. You see, if the church is going to be any, have any impact in the culture around us, if we're going to transform this world in any way, shape or form, to, to come under the Lordship of Christ, then we have to set apart our hearts with Christ as Lord. But it's worked out in two practical ways. Have a look at them if you can. Verse 16 and 17. Firstly, with a kind of there's a, there's a kind of a conversation going on here, isn't there? There's a confession of faith. Look at verse 15, halfway through. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the, um, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. To give an answer in that, in that verse uh, 15 there, at the end there, literally means to defend, uh, to defend our faith. The original word here is apologia. So uh, that's where we get our words apologetics from, okay? It's a defense of our faith. And notice it is always, always be prepared, and for everyone. That is, there isn't a place of immunity that the Christians can go, kind of a neutral zone, a kind of a Switzerland where we don't have to defend our faith, or a diplomatic area, kind of an ambassadorial kind of place. Oh, we don't have to go there. We don't have to do our kind of Christian stuff. No, everyone everywhere. We're called to be prepared to daily confess our faith in Jesus Christ, to defend our hope. 
in our Lord and our Saviour. Now the world thinks of that, that we are utterly bonkers. Deluded, many would say. But we must be prepared to tell the world that we have a reason. There's a reason for our confidence. There's a reason that I want to tell everything that moves in Earlsfield about Jesus Christ. We can have confidence. And our confidence comes in the fact that our faith is founded. We remember back in chapter 1 verse 3. Are founded in a living hope. It is Our hope is in the resurrected Jesus Christ. The resurrection is that kind of unique validity to our faith. So we have every reason to be confident, to uh, defend the hope that we have. But it says we must be confident, yes, but it must be done with gentleness and respect. And even though that gentleness and respect may never be reciprocated... As you meet and have conversations with your friends, they may be as a, and I heard of a few instances this week of people here where they've been absolutely lambasted by their friends, mocked, vilified for their faith, humiliated in front of colleagues. It happens. See, our gentleness and respect may never be reciprocated, but we fear God. We do not fear the angry, disrespectful people that we may be in conversation with and therefore we graciously defend our Lord I guess the assumption of these verses they kind of they kind of kick off from chapter 2 verse 12 the assumption is that we'll be living that life such good life among the pagans that they'll want to see our good deeds and glorify God that's the assumption and if we don't then I doubt we'll ever be asked to defend our faith no one will know we even have a faith if we don't live that good life amongst them. But if in our lives it is apparent that we have set apart Christ as Lord, people will start asking questions. They'll see a difference. They'll want to know the reason for the the hope you have. So we're to have an, an, an apologetic in what we say. We're to defend by our speech but also in our lives. You see that in the second way we defend Christ as Lord. It's with that clear conscience. Do you see that in, um, down in verse uh, 50, uh, sorry, verse 16 there, keeping a clear conscience. Now you can imagine Peter at this point, he's probably ringing back to all those times that he denied Christ. The, times, the amount of times he let Jesus down. You can read about those in the Gospels. But here Peter is pointing to the work of the Spirit that that brings a consistency of life within the Christian that should be apparent in our lives too. It means we've got nothing to hide. Of course not. He's not suggesting we're perfect as Christians. That's never going to be the case. And if you're here as a kind of friend, you know that to be the case. It's obvious we're not perfect. But a clear conscience points to a life that will not undermine the message that we're speaking, the defence of our faith. So we do sin, of course we do. But we're not guilty because we've been transformed by the cross. Christ has taken on himself the guilt that we deserve and therefore we're free, free to live for Christ in the strength of Christ by the Spirit of Christ. 
And Peter, what he's doing here is he's speaking of an, a kind of an integrity of life. It's not the empty way of life which he accused the non-Christians of. And therefore, a big contrast is made. And he's saying slander is inevitable as a result. But what he's saying in this verse, he's saying, whatever they say of you, whatever they do to you, it should have no content. That is, they can say what they like, but they they should have no reason for that. You should be able to live with a clear conscience. They should never be able to point the finger rightly. But what if you do suffer? And the implication here is we all will. If we live such good lives, cross-shaped lives, lives moulded by our hearts being set apart for Christ, as Christ as Lord, well, that life lived will mean that we are prepared to defend our living hope in Christ, but it will lead to all sorts of slander and suffering. But we must remember, we must remember, verse 14 is very helpful in this. We ought to see that as a blessing, a confirmation that we are living such a good life. That we are setting apart Christ as Lord. It confirms our faith. Therefore be practical. Defend Christ as Lord in our speech. But also in our living. Speech and living. We should constantly challenge the culture in these two practical ways. Now lastly. Thirdly, be confident. Trust Christ as Lord. Now the four at the beginning of verse 18. If, if you've been asleep for the whole of this time, wake up now. Best verse, whole passage, probably one of my favourites in the New Testament. Um, But here we go, verse 18. The four points us back to the sufferings before. Why? Well, because if you're going to, as a Christian, if you're going to face a difficult time with your work colleagues, with your family, with your friends, if you're going to face a difficult time, then you're going to need some help to get through that difficult time. And these last verses give us everything confidence to live for Christ, to have him set apart in our hearts as Lord. If you like, this is the motivation for the life of the Christian. But it's also the foundation. How? Well, Peter sets out evidence for Jesus' lordship here because that's what you need to hear. To live this distinct life under his lordship, you've got to be able to trust his lordship, haven't you? So look what he does. There are two themes that run throughout these these verses from 18 through to verse 22. They're really the two central themes of the Christian faith, actually. And this is what makes Christ Lord. We're to be confident despite all the pressures we're facing. Because Jesus is two things. And they kind of intermingle throughout all of these, these verses. We're going to dash over them quickly. But he is the crucified conqueror and he is the risen rescuer. He's the crucified conqueror. And he's the risen rescuer. Look at verse 18. I mean, everyone, this is just brilliant. It doesn't get any better than this. Memorize this verse. Ta- no, don't tattoo it. Um, it, it's a, it. This is the gospel. It is the center of the Christian faith. Therefore, it's the foundation, but it's also the pattern of the Christian life too. Look at it. We'll go through each, each clause very quickly. Christ died, it says. Historical fact. For sins. That is, his death was for something. More than just an example. It was an atoning work. That brought, brought about a change in our relationship with God. If we put our faith 
in this act. Christ died for sins once for all, fully and finally dealing with our sin. Now here's one, the righteous for the unrighteous. What that is saying is that the righteous one, Jesus, died in the place of, substituting himself for the unrighteous one, the one who's not right with God, the one who turns his back on God, rebels against God, sins against God, me and you. He's a substitutionary sacrifice. The righteous for the unrighteous. And what does all that do? What does it affect? It brings us to God. Because there's no other way. Without the cross, you see, there's no Christianity. But it's, it is the only way into relationship with the creator and sovereign God. But it's also the defining way which we live every day. Our, our lives as Christians must be cross-shaped, defined by that cross. That is, Christians, we, de- we depend as much on Jesus Christ as, a, as you know, today as the day that we first put our faith in him and his work on the cross. So he's put to death in the body. That is, he is the crucified conqueror. But for our ultimate confidence, if that isn't confidence enough for you to live in this world, uh, Christ was also made alive by the Spirit. He's the risen rescuer. Now here's where the the passage actually gets fairly complicated, shall we say. In fact, Luther in his commentary just says, let's move on, to paraphrase the German. Um, So Peter now, what what he's doing here... Um, He's using an Old Testament example, or what what you might call a type of Jesus. And he's he's, he's pointing to Noah. He's saying the stuff that we can learn about Jesus, we look at Noah and the story of Noah from Genesis chapter 6. Let me just point out a few things. Not everything, but a few things. So he points out in verse 20, look at it, that a few people were saved from the water in the story of Noah. Think back. He shows that in that story, the ark was the rescue instrument from the judgment of God, that being the flood. The judgment was the flood, yeah? And in Genesis 6, God needed to judge the rebellion of all the people in the world. So he holds back his judgment to begin, doesn't he? Begin with, for Noah to build the ark. He holds back his judgment. Water comes, God's judgment comes. And all the world, the known world at that time, passes through that judgment of God, that water, that flood. But we see here, eight were delivered. So what you're seeing here is the water is the vehicle of God's judgment, but for the rest of the world, sorry, it's it's the vehicle of God's judgment for, for all the world, but it was the vehicle of salvation for the eight that were saved. In Noah's family. Therefore, if you like, it becomes a blessing. The flood was a blessing for those who were secured in the ark of God's protection and kindness. Now, what what Peter's doing is he's trying to parallel that that image and that, that Old Testament story with that of baptism. And he does that. And he's saying baptism is a picture of that, of new life with Christ conceived by the cross. So what he says is that when, when Christ the Lord died, the instrument of judgment also 
becomes the vehicle of salvation. The cross on which he bore our judgment for our sins, um, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God, actually becomes the means of salvation. So when we are baptised, what he's saying is that it's symbolising that we are identifying with that salvation. We're, so thinking about baptism immersion, that's what he's thinking here. When you go down, when you're dunked into the water, that symbolises a death. You're passing through the waters of judgment, if you like. But that has been conquered through the judgment that has been born on Jesus on the cross. So therefore, as you come out of the water, that symbolises that resurrecting salvation that's been brought through Jesus in his resurrection. So we, what, we, what we're doing there is we're symbolizing a, kind of a, a dying to an old way of living and rising to new life in the kingdom of God. And what was a means of judgment, the cross, has become this means of salvation for those who put their faith in it. Baptism, of course, is just the outward visible sign of this inward spiritual grace. And it's, it is a symbolic thing. Verse 21 makes that clear, doesn't it? It's a wonderful New Testament picture of that saving from God's judgment that the ark also symbolizes. How do we know that it is saving? Verse 21, we know that it saves us because God has raised and ascended through Jesus Christ. Jesus is resurrected and made alive by the Spirit. So, you see, our confidence comes today As we trust in Christ as Lord. Lord through being the crucified conqueror. But also Lord being the risen rescuer. Raised up by the Spirit. Let me conclude. I'm sure there will be many questions about that bit. I have many questions myself. Why do we fear? Why do we fear? Why do we compromise sometimes in our conversations with friends? It is probably because we do not reverence or set apart Christ as Lord. Is that fair? Certainly fair in my life. And are you feeling the pressure right now? Maybe you've had conversations with friends. You've had those initial we're doing something at church up in, coming up in May. Are you feeling the pressure? Pressure is always in the infallible de- detector of weakness, our own weakness. And so therefore we need to set apart our hearts for Christ as Lord, the one who has no weakness but only strength. We re- remember we don't have to fear what they fear. We are free to live for Jesus. So these three very practical things. Be strong, be practical, defend Christ as Lord, and be confident, trust Christ as Lord. Or in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to finish, one of his latest things that he wrote just before he died, I discover later that I'm still discovering right up to this moment, that it is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. By this worldliness I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes and failures. In so doing, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God.
taking seriously not our own sufferings, but those of God in the world. That, I think, is faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please do forgive us when we have held on to aspects, parts of our lives which we do not want to come under your Lordship. Help us to be strong, knowing the strength that you can only give through the cross and to give you everything, to set apart every part of our life, our heart, our minds, to you. That you might be Lord of all of us in our entirety. Help us also to defend your Lordship in the way that we live and in the way that we speak. Help us also to be confident, to trust in the gospel that you have died for our sins in our place to bring us to God. And that you have risen. And that we can rise with you too. If we trust in your salvation. Help us to be strong. To be practical. To be confident we pray. And trust that you are Lord. Amen.